Hey everybody, Dave Hodges here, host of the Common Sense Show. Thanks for staying with us into our guest segment. And as you know, we always have an intro that precedes this and uh, all comes together. But we like to spend considerable time with our guests. And we have a guest today that's going to shed some light on the oil industry. And I don't think it's getting enough attention. Now I have to tell you that when I look at oil i'm really worried about the ramifications not just about you know he's gonna dave's gonna dave jenkins our guest is going to be talking about some implementations he thinks that needs to come from the federal government and i agree with what he's saying but the ramifications are so far reaching can we even get products to market after a while with what's going on in the oil market and that's something that i'll bring up today but first i need to let you know there's some people here that keep the lights on for us and uh, we like to package a couple of things together. We could be in for some really rough times. Food shortages are already starting to show up. The meat shortages in Wendy's where one out of four stores don't have meat and they're pushing their chicken sandwiches. And we're hearing some real dire projections from farmers and people on grocery co-op chains that I interview. And so get ready. We have storable food that has great diversity. It's restaurant type quality. I like it when I tasted it. And there's 25 year shelf life and the prices have not increased pre-COVID prices. I mean, how many people can say that with all the price gouging that's been going on? How do you get yours? Go to preparewithdave.com. That's preparewithdave.com. And if you have food, you darn well better have water because how long will critical infrastructure people stay on the job during a crisis? Well, the answer is, Katrina shows us about four days. And the Naval War College says on the fifth day of a prolonged crisis, waterborne illness has become a big, big problem. You don't want to go there. You'll have plenty of water. Swimming pools, creeks, ponds, streams, standing water. But you may not find it safe to drink, and even what comes out of your tap, if no one's minding the store, so to speak, well, you got to worry. That's why we sell the Alexa Pure Pro water filter, and I'm a research guy, and you know that. I taught that for a lot of years at the university level. So let me just say this very, very clearly, ladies and gentlemen. When we take a look at the situation involving water purity, the research at this site says this is the best. Go to waterwithdave.com, and oh, by the way, 40% off is what they're offering right now in this crisis time. So yeah, preparewithdave.com for the food and waterwithdave.com for the water. And we have Dave Jenkins here and I just lost my screen. Oh my goodness. Um, hold on here. Let me make a little adjustment here because I've got everything I need for this interview right here and I just pulled it up. Okay. All right. Live radio at its best, right? Here we go. Dave Jenkins. And, and I'll tell you, I've been wanting to interview someone about oil for some time and and Dave just kind of jumped in my lap, thanks to Crystal Bailey, who uh, Crystal Mullings, who came across and said, hey, I have a guest here for you. And I said, wow, this is just what we want to do. So let me give Dave's bio, and then we'll jump right into this. Dave has worked for CRS, or its predecessor organization, Republicans for Environmental Protection, since 2005. For much of that time, he served as the VP for Government and Political Affairs for REP. He has been instrumental in numerous organizational and legislative accomplishments. Dave has written and spoken extensively about many of today's most pressing environmental issues, conservatism, our nation's conservation, heritage, and American politics. His writing has appeared in dozens of newspapers and other publications. Prior to CRS and Rep, Dave was the American Canoe Association's Director of Conservation and Public Policy for 10 years, and before that, he was on the staff well, this takes you back for Senator Pete Domenici of uh, New Mexico. He holds a BA in political science from Furman University. Dave, welcome to the Common Sense Show. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Dave, I want to just start off by a public declaration here. Sometimes my audience has the mistaken belief that because I'm a conservative, I'm against all forms of environmentalism. I am not. 
I'm against unresearched, untested, illogical claims made by some people on the left that want to take away things from us that are needless and unnecessary. But I think we should be good stewards of our environment. So having said that, I think we've got the playing field to go into here. And you're concerned about oil. So let's just jump right into it, Dave. Uh, how did you get concerned? And let's just follow this trail. Well, as you know, conservatives are usually uh, concerned about um, uh, taxpayers and, and making sure that we get a fair deal. Um, and also fiscal responsibility. That's, uh, you know, with with all the spending nowadays, you you wonder if that's still still uh, a thing. But um, but um, you know, you do it at your home with your checkbook, your bank account. Uh, we think our government should be fiscally responsible as well. And so, to that end, um, you know, with with the free market, you know, and you know whether you got stocks or you're talking about real estate, the whole notion is that when you sell something that you have, you sell you try to sell high. You don't sell low. Of course. And um, given the current glut of oil. Uh, on the market um, and the, the absolutely collapsing demand. Um, I mean, we've got oil tankers off the coast of California that just sit there because they have no place to put the oil. Uh, in Canada, they're they're storing oil in pipelines, uh, tap plugging up the ends and just storing, using them as storage. Uh, it, it's really crazy. So we're saying, well, in that environment, it really doesn't make any sense for us to hold lease auctions of our public lands and continue to to try to lease land for oil and gas development right at the moment. We should suspend that for the rest of the year because there's no way the American taxpayer is going to get anywhere near a fair return on these lease sales when the market is flooded and demand for oil has crashed. Well, um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And so I guess I have to ask the obvious question when I look at why we're doing things that seem to make no sense on the surface, then tell me who's benefiting from this illogical practice. Well, the oil companies will ultimately because if, uh, if they can, um, if we practically give away our public assets. Now, the, the way taxpayers uh, get a return from oil and gas leasing on public land or oil and gas activity on public land, they get it in two ways. Uh, one is through companies bidding against each other for leases and driving up the price. You know, there's a nice lease there. You want the oil underneath, and two companies compete for it, and eventually that lease price is high. Um, and also through royalties. Uh, when the oil and gas is produced, uh, we get 12.5% of, um, of that uh, split between the federal government and, and the state. Um, neither of those are likely to be good sources of revenue while the industry is, is literally drowning in oil it, it, oil it can't sell and oil it has no place to store so when you when that happens is if you don't have bidding on a lease on leases they can sell at something called the minimum bid which is a paltry two dollars per acre and the ones that don't sell then get on a secondary market and they would they could be got for a dollar fifty an acre and that's a per year price um, so, in our view, it's it's kind of fiscal lunacy to continue to hold lease auctions right now when the oil company doesn't even, I mean, they're ramping down production because they have no place to put the oil. They have no demand. So, why don't, you know, what's the rush? Why don't we just hold on our assets and then if we want to if we want to uh, start this back up again when the market improves, then that's fine. But don't shortchange taxpayers by just sort of 
staying on the same course even though the situation all across the world has changed. So buying at these depressed prices, I can see how it affects the American taxpayer. But I'm wondering about the motive for the oil company. So pardon me if I guess wrong here, but is it due to the fact that they're trying to acquire land uh, that could be oil rich as cheaply as possible today for use tomorrow in an escalating environment? Exactly. Um, if they can if they can lease land for a buck fifty an acre or two dollars an acre, when in good times they would have had to compete with another company, and they might that you know that lease could have went for thousands of thousands or even millions of dollars an acre. Um, well, why not do that? Uh, it's a good deal for the oil companies long term. They have relatively little investment in that. Um, in fact, you know, right now the oil companies are actually sitting on um, they're sitting on 36 million acres of public land that they've leased, and only a third of that is under some phase or level of production. Um, they're also sitting on around 10,000 unused permits. So they like to hoard these assets for the future. And um, some degree of that is, is forward thinking, and, and, and you know it certainly makes sense. But we've got to look at this, I mean, we own these lands, you know, these, these belong to us. Um, and um, we want to get a, a good return on it. Um, and when, if oil is not the, the right use at the time for these lands, then they should be managed for other uses that could, could uh, generate revenue or could um, just generally help, help society in general, like uh, you know, whether it's recreation, hunting, fishing, um, water supply management, um, uh, other forms of outdoor recreation, tourism. There's a lot of a lot of things you you know th these public lands are utilized for, and um, sitting them up on a shelf for the oil companies at, a, at bargain basement prices just doesn't seem very wise. Well, let's go to the uh, agencies who are allowing this abuse of taxpayer trust uh, to continue. Could we be talking about groups like the BLM or the National Forest Service? Uh, BLM is is the primary agency responsible. Yes, and. Uh, uh, when um, when the Trump administration came in, uh, there was an executive order, um, and and there's a real rush to lease as much land as possible. So, so BLM's under kind of a mandate to hold lease sales um, like every quarter, and so hundreds of thousands of acres are put up for lease uh, every quarter, and uh, they've been doing this at a at a at a rapid clip, and um, they're, they're even doing it in states like Nevada where. Uh, Geologically, they, they really have no oil and gas. But anyway, um, that's it's one thing to do that when you know you're trying to ramp up production, and you want us you want the U.S. to be independent uh, uh, on a, on an oil basis from uh, places like Saudi Arabia and Russia and things like that. Um, but um, when you've got such a glut on the market, you, you need to you need to alter your course. And right now. They're just continuing with those marching orders as if nothing has changed, but everything has changed. And, um, uh, you know, if the oil companies uh, buy these public assets um, for a song and a prayer now, um, we have no chance to really um, ever get that back. I mean, these lease terms are 10 years long and they can be extended. Um, the other thing that's crazy is that the administration is uh, considering, or they're actually moving forward on a case-by-case -case basis, with royalty relief. In other words, cutting the rate of return for the taxpayers on 
oil and gas is produced. So we're supposed to get 12.5% onshore, and I think it's more like 15% offshore. Um, but they want to slash those royalty rates. The, oh the, the, problem with, the problem with that is not only does it hurt taxpayers, but it actually incentivizes production. If you can pull out oil and pay less royalties, you've got an incentive to pull that oil out now as opposed to later. Um, so what do, what do we want to do when we've got a flooded market and tankers off the coast of California that can't dump their oil? We want to continue to incentivize production when we're asking, we're begging Saudi Arabia and Russia and Mexico to cut production? Mm-hmm. It, it, it just makes no sense. Can I, can I ask you a, a question here? Because now you're getting into my layman's knowledge here, so <laughs> I'm going to need some guidance, and I'm probably pretty reflective of most of my audience who don't work in this industry. But what I'm wondering here, the oil companies seem to be working counterproductively towards their own final end, because if you overproduce, the law of supply and demand says that you can't charge as much at the pump because of the glut. So doesn't that work against their end result? Uh, yes, it does. Um, actually, I mean, I think last week I paid a dollar fifty-nine uh, for a gallon of gas, which is kind of unheard of over the past. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you hear it all the time um, over the past three months um, of oil companies in trouble, t- thinking about filing for bankruptcy, uh, having to shut down wells. Uh, you know, a lot of the oil that we produce in our country is um, is from uh, fracking. It's uh, from shell formations. And it's more expensive to produce that kind of oil than it is uh, some of the, um, the the type of oil, the shallow oil and stuff that Saudi Arabia has. So the price per barrel has to be at a certain level for it to even be profitable to pull that oil out of the ground. And um, when when you have when you're sort of set in one direction, you know they just didn't anticipate this. The oil and gas companies just figured that demand is just going to continue. Uh, I think the administration did too. Uh, unabated um, and they don't it's, it's like having a spigot that's locked in the own position and you haven't figured out that you need a way to turn it off yeah I, I've said happy days are here again with the oil prices but there's a real cost you know Dave there's only one thing that comes to mind here about why this practice would be allowed to be continued well maybe two reasons on the part of the Trump administration one would be wink and a nod and I'll see you at campaign time uh, with your donations mm-hmm. uh, but the other thing that really jumps into my mind is a lot of people and I'm one of them think that we're on a collision course with possible conflict military conflict with China and you would want extremely cheap oil and you'd want to hoard as much as you could for a war effort have you thought about that at all well, the only problem is, I mean, how would you hoard it? Uh, we don't, I mean, our, once the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is full, uh, where do you put it? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the big good, question. Good question, good question. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't built up storage for, for, like, those kind of long-range things. I mean, Strategic Petroleum Reserve is is designed to, to protect the country and like, situation like we had back in the early 70s where there's an oil embargo and we've had a short supply. Of course, we don't have that situation now because we're actually producing more oil than anywhere else in the world. Well, I just, I look at this and I'm just thinking, but this makes no sense then. Why are they working against their own point of sale and profits? I don't get that. Well, it, it, it seems like it's tracking a little bit with, with this, um, uh, willingness to just sort of forget about fiscal responsibility. Um, 
I mean, if you look at all the spending, and I know obviously some of the spending uh, has needed to be done because of uh, of the pandemic, but you know we're we're incurring mountains and mountains of debt, and so the whole notion of taxpayers not getting a fair return on uh, uh, leasing of public lands or the production of oil, I guess that just looks like a drop in the bucket to them. But um, you know, um, I think as Barry Goldwater once said, you know, you pick up a penny here or a dime there, and pretty soon you got real money. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's like they're trying to bankrupt the country, or at least doing their part to do so. I mean, it could be your time. And, and here's another issue I want to bring in a side issue. For the last several years, oh gosh, and I bet going back to 2005, 2006. I've been hearing from various Native American leaders, like from the Navajo tribe and so forth, and they they complain vociferously, uh, Lakota Sioux or another, about the um, the intrusions onto their native lands that are unwarranted, and they get bullied off much of their land in the name of drilling for oil profits. Is this a factor in this at all, or is this the same bullying? Added? I just don't get it. How does this all factor together? Well, certainly there are there are, are lands that the tribes consider sacred that um, the administration has been opening up for oil and gas leasing. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a, uh, there was some leasing around uh, Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, and uh, the tribes really uh, opposed this. And then um, there's a comment period on the management of that area, and uh, the tribes, since they, they, they don't exactly have the internet connectivity that you and I do a lot of times, um, They've been asking that we they postpone the the comment period until this whole COVID-19 thing uh, passes. And BLM said no. And the question is why? <laughs> you know, what's the rush? Uh, not like a lot of things are going to be happening uh, until this thing blows over. Um, so you know, they're not even letting the, the tribes uh, have a have a say in in any of this stuff. Hmm. Okay, let me go one step further here, and feel free to rein me in here in this uh, maybe fantasy thinking here. But um, I know the Baltic Dry Index that measures trade internationally is at a continual all-time low and has been for some time now. And if COVID begins to um, uh, mitigate and we really do get back into earnest, back to work, and the rest of the world is oil-deprived, couldn't that be a real boon market for that stored oil and those tankers just redirect them to the countries that'll pay whatever they got to get to get started with their economies again? Uh, I'm not sure that there's any star. I mean, right now the issue globally is a glut of oil. Mm-hmm. So everybody's having the same hard time we okay. are with where to store it. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take Saudi Arabia and Russia and and, uh, and Mexico and places like that to you know very long to ramp up production and they're still they're still producing more than they should, as are we, uh, and we have you know we have the um, uh, most of our oil production is really in two places it's in the uh, Bakken Basin up in the Dakotas and it's in the Permian Basin down in Texas uh, West Texas and uh, and eastern New Mexico, and um, and then, of course, you've got, you know, offshore. Um, but, um, you know, the supply of oil is not uh, not really a problem. I mean, I remember uh, years ago when the big issue was everybody was warning about peak oil, um, that meaning that they thought that our oil supply had peaked and we were going down the other side. 
Um, of course, this new situation gives a whole new meaning to the phrase peak oil. <laughs> we're, we're constantly at the top of the peak and drowning. Um, but your point before about this is not good for the oil industry is, is, is very interesting because, yeah, these depressed prices are, are, are forcing a lot of uh, companies into, into dire situations. But one question I have is why? Because if you look over the last two or three decades, um, oil companies have been making a fortune. I mean, they've been making profits hand and fist. You read every quarter all these profits. And, you know, you remember $5 a gallon gas. Oh, yes. Um, so they have all these profits for decades. And we have a downturn for three months, and they can't handle it? Where's all that money been going? You know, it's I'm baffled as to their motive. I, I you know, I've hear I've heard you explain this, what you're saying makes perfect sense, but it's it's like they're committing economic suicide. And if you can say one thing about the oil industry, they're 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 very, shall we say, profit conscious mm-hmm. uh, to the extreme. I mean, you just you go back to the uh, early days of Standard Oil. I mean, just to get a, a personality, and they they had to be legislated against, and even then the legislation wasn't effective, like with the Sherman Antitrust Act. And then even President Kennedy dealt with the oil depletion allowance, and that was a big thorn in his side. And, and so the the oil companies have never been accused of being anything but self-serving. Yeah. So this just to me, I, I'm baffled. <laughs> Maybe there's some kind of three-dimensional chess going on game going on here that we can't quite see through. But from our particular concern, you know, our concern is is um, our fiduciary responsibility and uh, um, fiscal stewardship and um, and you know conservation and and those basic principles that those those are conservative principles. I mean, go back to Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, um, you know. And and you know if you grow grew up in, in uh, rural America, you know you you've been taught steward basic conservation and stewardship. You know hunt for just what you need, uh, um, uh, store things, conserve things. Um, and um, you know right now our our government doesn't seem to be uh, abiding by any of those principles. If we were to go to war, let's say this fall, and let's say it was fairly major, Venezuela, South China Sea. And your enemy is numerically superior to you. How does this situation affect a war effort? Has that been something that anybody in your groups have discussed? Uh, we've not. Um, we're, we're sort of dealing a little bit more in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's hope that's not a not a situation. Of course, if any kind of war effort, if you look through history, um, you know, nation, you know, our nation has always been quick to mobilize. Um, which makes kind of the response to the COVID thing kind of scary because uh, it seems like like we haven't mobilized quite quite as quickly as we used to. I don't know whether that's in, in inherent aspects of our economy, how much uh, production and stuff is overseas, or just uh, you know incompetence at different levels. Uh, but um, you know we've been very slow to respond to this, and so it, it kind of should be a wake up call. It makes you wonder, you know, how ready are we to? Uh, to respond to other kinds of crises, even if it was as bad as uh, something like like a you know another war, another large war. I think industrially we could. I think what we're seeing with the uh, problems with COVID is we're allowing the uh, um, shall we say the medical establishment to make economic decisions at the same time, and they're not equipped to do so. And I don't think they understand the balance between you know health 
and uh, financial health. I don't think they see that balance. Um, and I think this, this kind of explains the approach we're seeing that seems to be rather fragmented. Um, but yeah. I, I just, the fact that this would happen on top of the COVID crisis too is interesting to me. It may not be conspiratorial, but I don't think it could come at a worse time. Do you? Well, no, and you know, we um, we really think that our our energy supply should be diversified. Um, you know, if you you own a stock portfolio, you you want to um, you want to diversify that. You don't want to own all, have all your stock in one company or, or one uh, industry. And um, so, one thing that we've noticed with our at least in, in the transportation sector, obviously that that's not been very diversified. And uh, right now you're seeing really bold moves by Republicans in places like Utah and Nevada um, and even Arizona um, really pushing uh, more electrification of our transportation sector. And uh, you're, you're seeing it in the long haul trucking industry, too, where you've got Peterbilt and Kenworth and, uh, of course, Tesla has, has a semi truck, too. And um, they're all trying to electrify as well. Um, because it makes economic sense to them, and and then they're not held hostage to uh, to fuel prices as, as much. But the um, the thing is, nobody envisioned what we got now. Whereas we got we got very low fuel prices, but uh, uh, that's not a sustainable thing uh, over the long term. You know, one of the things. Okay, let me just pose this as a straight hypothesis. As I'm sitting here, you know, analyzing this issue of the oil glut, which is driving down prices. I've often said, you know, the the main reason we don't have, uh, you know, a lot of electric cars or solar powered cars on the road, or we don't uh, go with alternative forms of energy, is because it's too profitable for certain people to use oil, and there's no incentive for them to make a switch. And now I'm wondering, with the depressed oil market, would this open the door for um, moving these oil companies diversifying and expanding into alternative forms of energy? Yeah, well, they have been diversifying and expanding the oil companies, the big oil companies. I mean, you know, the majors like Exxon and BP and and Chevron and and Shell and those guys, um, where a lot of the a lot of the ones that you see that um, uh, are in trouble now are the ones that are not diversifying, have not been diversifying over the several, last several years. You know, Chesapeake and 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 companies like that who are really sort of all in on oil, you know, oil and gas, and uh, uh, so so yes, I mean. This should be a, a, a clarion call, uh, uh, or, or you know, warning shot across the bow, however you want to characterize it, uh, to the oil and gas industry um, and to, to other energy, for, you know, uh, companies that that uh, are energy producers. That diversification is your friend. I mean, that is you. You cannot predict a COVID-19 uh, with with any certainty. You can't predict when a war is going to happen. You can't predict a lot of things, but. Uh, by diversifying, you help, you know, uh, insulate yourself from from those kind of shocks and impacts, and and the value of solar and uh, wind and those things. You know, used to, you know, remember back when uh, Jimmy Carter uh, put those solar panels on the White House. Uh, I guess someone could say he was ahead of time if they wanted to be uh, be generous. But I mean, that technology wasn't going to be ready for another 40 years. <laughs> but uh, um, but now in this day and age it is a lot more uh, ready and um, the great thing is in, in states like Nevada and Arizona and Utah you you can have utility scale solar in the state 
So your power is being generated in your state, no pipelines, no you know, coal trains, nothing that, no supply lines that depend on other things. You are self-sufficient. And uh, um, actually, uh, to that end, um, late last year, um, or actually it was early last year, now, um, the um, Nevada State Legislature uh, passed uh, a renewable energy standard of uh, 50% by 2030. And the funny thing about that is, is they did that with 100% Republican support. Not one Republican wow. voted against that. Because what does Nevada have of an abundance of? Solar, sun. obviously, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have tons of sun. So now, you know, Washington State, it would probably be different, right? But in Nevada, it made total sense. And um, uh, other other uh, ones in the South, and right now, you know, the price of solar is, is so low, it's um, it's squeezing out oil and, oil and gas too. So. So that diversification that we were talking about earlier with the the uh, energy companies is is key to their survival. And uh, the ones that get that are probably going to weather this storm. And the ones that don't get that are you know they might not be here in a in a couple months. Have you seen the, uh, some of the details of the uh, uh, green movement of Ocasio Cortez and what they're calling for, getting people out of their cars, for example? Have Have you looked at that at all? Uh, no, I've not. Well, okay, but let me just cut right to the chase. They're saying a lot of what you're saying here, but they say it without substance and backup. In other words, they say we got to we got to get you out of your cars and do other things, but they don't even talk about the benefits. It's just like we're the government, we're the boss, and we're going to tell you what to do, rather than incentivizing their documents. Because the way you explain it, there's real financial motive to do this. The way they explain it, it's like we're the government and we'll do what we want. Well, um, are you you referring to the Green New Deal? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Green New Deal. I mean, <laughs> we uh, we shake our head at that, and um, uh, the reason is if you if you read it, it it you know it professes to be about climate change, but if you read through this thing, uh, it has very little to do with climate. Um, it's it's actually you know about you know social equity and equity of outcomes and um, and thing things like that that. Um, you know, here on, you know, us on the conservative side uh, have, have some issues with. Um, mm -hmm. But um, uh, there, there's plenty of incentive for uh, moving away from um, from oil and gas and coal. Um, uh, and, and, you know, one that we're not really, we haven't really talked about is uh, with, uh, with COVID-19 and, and, and what that does to your lungs and, and how it attacks vulnerable lungs. Um, the whole concept of you know every breath matters and 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 our air quality is is important. That's um, that that's something people should be thinking about too. And in, in Utah, and you know Utah is about as red as they come. The uh, the state legislature there has been really pushing electric vehicles, um, and it's been the whole effort's been led by Republicans. And, and the reason for that is air quality along the Washats front has been a problem, and their constituents, who are Republican as well, uh, are really upset about it They're, they won't they won't clean her air and so um, uh, most of that pollution there is coming from the transportation sector so they're pushing really hard and you know it, it's funny you would you would think that electrification of vehicles would be something that'd be pushed by the left in places like new york or boston or or places like that when actually this movement is coming from the wide open west with in in red states and 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 being pushed by republicans it's kind of interesting 
That is so fascinating to me, but I'll just hazard a guess here. Um, the industries would be uh, profit-oriented, capitalist-oriented, uh, laissez-faire with you know maybe as little as possible government control, and the Democrats and the New Green Deal, I mean, they control every aspect, and it's centrally uh, financed, centrally controlled, and we know from the Soviet Union, their five-year plans, that doesn't work. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that's the biggest difference between what the Democrats are saying and what the Republicans are embracing. They don't want to profit. Yeah. And that's why we we do encourage um, uh, conservatives to um, to be more active on on issues on you know on the environment and and things like this like we used to be. I mean, if you look through through Republican history, you know Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, he's he sort of uh, set the bar on uh, our public lands ethic and wildlife ethic. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go up through through history. I mean, Hoover did some great things, um, Eisenhower, and then you get to Nixon. And you get, you know, you get the, the Clean Air Act, you get the Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, uh, NEPA, all these different things, uh, because we had a huge pollution problem back then, uh, Cuyahoga River on fire, uh, sludge worms in Lake Erie, so forth, um, and we fixed a lot of that, and that was done by, you know, Republican leadership and a lot of a lot of uh, votes in, in Congress that were were like, you know, 99 to one and stuff like that. Um, and then even with with with, with Reagan, um, they got the lead out of the gasoline. He um, he pushed through the Montreal Protocol to deal with the ozone depletion issue, and and then George H. W. Bush with the Clean Air Act amendments and and uh, acid dealing with acid rain. Um, Republicans have have owned this issue so much through history, and and have uh, been leaders in this. And the problem is, if we cede all this stuff to the left um, to to find the solutions. We're going to get solutions like the Green New Deal, and you know that, that's not the answer. But uh, uh, that's why if we disengage on this stuff and we we don't take these kind of issues seriously, uh, for whatever reason, we're basically you know handing the football off to the left. Excuse me. Are you saying that? Are you embracing a kind of a decentralized approach to energy diversification? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I just think we need to be proactive and do things in a way that's market friendly and you know there recognizes you recognizes market realities. You let the market work for you to the ends that you're trying to achieve. You don't work you don't swim upstream against the market. Exactly. When when I analyzed President Obama's uh, uh, plan to uh, have climate change uh, and he wanted to do away with 80% of energy which I just thought was ludicrous and the Senate shut him down but when I look at that it's a centralized control where a centralized agency will hand out carbon credits and you can trade your way out of it and I always said well how can you trade your way out of it if it's a crisis in our environment and the earth is going to come to an end in 11 years like Ocasio-Cortez said how can you let anyone buy their way out of their energy usage quota doesn't make any sense and this centralized control will allow a few people to get filthy rich Well, I think there is going to be widespread economic abuse and when I asked you about decentralization you kind of answered it when you said yeah we let the market determine that's a decentralized approach as opposed to a one-size-fits-all that the Democrats are pushing well and and you, we get it from both sides I mean that the Democrats a lot of times push a one-size-fits-all and top-down kind of kind of approach but then on the right, um, especially when you when you get sort of into the realm of special interest influence, um, you get um, you get things like um, like what we have with the the utility sector. You know, 
there is no free market in, in a lot of times in, in, in our utilities where we get our electricity and stuff. A lot of times these utilities have a captive market. And uh, these companies, a lot of the companies, that, a lot of the util- big utilities, they, um, they're opposed to anything that's decentralized, like, um, like rooftop solar. You know, the, uh, Barry Goldwater Jr. Uh, you know, has been pushing for rooftop solar in, in Arizona for a long time uh, because what's better for, especially people on sort of the, we're more traditionalist uh, conservative, but the, when you get for, further into the libertarian side of things, what on earth is better than producing your own electricity at home on your rooftop? Especially if you live in a state like Arizona or, or, or Nevada, um, and um, but the utilities hate that because basically that just um, siphons off um, electricity that that could be being purchased through them. Well, I live in Arizona, and we're we're fully solar here at our house, and our utility bill okay. reflects that it's so low. But we can't uncouple from Arizona Public Service, which I have a problem with. But but we're still better off having solar. But I have a neighbor. Um, and I live out in rural Arizona, so I have a neighbor. He's maybe half mile away from me, and I was down at his house a couple of years ago, and he said, "Yeah, I've got my rates down to sixteen dollars an hour." And Arizona Public Service sent their representatives out, and they demanded I fully get back on the grid. <laughs> I'm not yeah. joking. I swear this is a true story. A lot of people don't believe the story, but but uh, God bless my neighbor. He says, "No, do something. Take me to court." And they've left him alone. Uh, and he doesn't fully embrace the solar approach. He is really, really handy at what he does. And uh, I, I just look at that, that these utility companies do not want to let you off the grid. Yeah, and, and it comes back to free market, too. You know, if you had, if you had competition in that market, um, and given the price of solar lately, uh, you know, we're talking, we're talking $22 a megawatt hour for solar plus storage. I mean that's including the battery storage for evening generation, and um, uh, that's utility scale prices. When you get that low and you and you've got some um, aging coal plants like Four Corners and stuff, um, you know, selling electricity at eighty-four dollars a megawatt hour. Um, I mean, people don't realize how much money they're forking out for energy uh, at, at higher prices when they could be they could be paying so much less. Yeah, like I said, we didn't really like the APS plan, and my wife and I sat down, though, and she's the money person. She used to run a major corporation here in Arizona and had a big budget, so I let all the financial things go to her. And she came back and she said, you know, honey, if we go solar, it's not perfect, but in seven years, we'll have completely paid for it, and we'll have a bill usually of under $5 a month. (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay, sign me up, honey. And we were lucky enough to have the money to put the solar on at that time. Uh, and so I hear exactly what you're saying. So let's go full circle back to this oil glut problem. I'm going to place you hypothetically at the uh, board of directors, maybe a CEO of a major oil corporation, say, on oh, no, like Exxon, and I'm going to ask you a question. How are you benefiting from the glut? What, what would your answer be based on all that we've talked about? Uh, I would have a hard time um, answering that question. I, I, I couldn't. I mean, I think... Uh, I guess the only way you could benefit, I guess, is these other com- smaller companies like uh, Chesapeake or, or the oil services companies that are not diversified. See, Exxon and BP and those guys are diversified just enough that, that they can they can weather this storm. It, it hurts them in the short term, but they can probably weather it. But then these other companies that are going to be filing for bankruptcy that are all oil, you know, or all natural gas or whatever, but um, they they file for bankruptcy 
you can scoop in and get those assets uh, for a song and a prayer. And then they become bigger. And then when the oil price, when the oil, oil market rebounds, then um, they're in a better situation. I gave, uh, and I think you'll catch the metaphor here. Uh, gosh, it was probably 12 years ago. I went to uh, our nearest town, uh, Wickenburg, Arizona, population of 7,000. And Walmart wanted to move into town. And I went and did a presentation based on data I had acquired. And uh, I said, you know, when Walmart comes to town, the, you're going to love them if you're a consumer only because they're going to lower their prices to a level to where everyone's going to shop there. And then in five years, all your small businesses will be gone. And then they'll jack their rates up about 10 to 20% over what they were charging when they came to town and what your small businesses were charging. Am I hearing this undersell philosophy here that maybe the big oil companies want to drive out the second level competition that aren't diversified? Well, I'm not sure it's by design. Uh, I mean, obviously they, they couldn't predict COVID-19, but um, I think just by, by the nature of their business and their, their sort of move toward diversification uh, some years ago, that they are just, it's just like anything with a stock market portfolio. You know, if you're, if you're diversified with bonds and stuff, and when the stock market goes down, you're 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 able to sort of weather that storm. Um, they they're in a position to weather the storm, and they're going to be opportunistic, um, as 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 they probably should in, in their situation, uh, and they're going to um, uh, scarf up these uh, these companies that that can't can't make it, and they get uh, whittled down. I and mean, we we see that kind of consolidation in a lot of a lot of industries when there's economic hard times, and uh, this will be no different. Um, our concern is that. Um, uh, in order, you know, this situation is making making that landscape for them, but at the same time, we shouldn't be, um, you know, hurting taxpayers in the process by um, by continuing to do business as usual and uh, 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 have lease auctions when we know we're not going to get anything above a minimum bid and um, and cut royalties, um, which which you know create even exacerbate exacerbates this situation even more. Do you think that, excuse me, since a lot of these um, deals are promulgated on native land, that perhaps a big boost for your approach for, you know, responsible stewardship of taxpayer-owned lands could also contain a civil rights component to it in, in defense of Native American rights? Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, they, their rights should be respected and, uh, and um their land and their sacred, you know, their sacred lands and their religions and stuff, uh, all that should be should be taken into account. <clears throat> One place where this came in really uh, as an issue is um, something the, the administration did early on where it was trying to roll back some national monuments in Utah, uh, Bears Ears and the Grand Staircase Escalante. Um, those places are just full of Native American sacred sites. And um, um, they did this through a in our view, a complete misread of the Antiquities Act that, that Theodore Roosevelt pushed through. In fact, the Antiquities Act, it was um, uh, uh, sponsored by a Republican, it was passed by a Republican Congress, and it was signed into law by a Republican president. Um, and, you know, it, it was a one-way thing. It's, it's like you can protect lands, but it didn't give you any kind of authority to, to, to go backwards. And But because there are you know, energy interest, uh, oil, coal, uh, uranium, uh, that were had the, the administration's ear. 
uh, and 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 you know some folks in Utah uh, <clears throat> in the in the, that delegation, um, they um, they rolled those back. And if you look if you look at a map of where in the past they had uh, the USGS had suspected uh, you know <clears throat> where there's mineral mineral wealth, you overlay that map over where they decided to roll back the boundaries of those monuments it traces that exactly in other words their whole intent was to roll back those monuments to uncover those those resources because they had companies already you know bending their ear that oh we want those resources and they're protected right now we can't get to them um and you know what the native americans wanted to do and 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 wanted to protect uh didn't matter a whit Wow, if I'm an attorney for uh, uh, these natives, uh, native tribes that are being affected this way, I'd be putting those maps out and saying, "Hey, this is cultural genocide," and you know all the hyperbole that would go with that. And I think that would attract a lot of attention here in Arizona. Native causes are big. You know, I'm disappointed mm-hmm. we haven't cut more into the the poverty level and, and lower that. But the causes here are big, and I and I understand they are in New Mexico too. Uh, so I, I think this is fertile ground here. So let's go to solutions now. Okay. So I think you've really articulated very well that uh, the oil companies are being allowed by BLM to operate against taxpayer interest. So what can the average person do in our audience to help with this situation if they if we want to reverse this as a nation? Well, the the, the first thing I would suggest people do is really scream bloody murder at their. Uh, elected representatives in Congress, uh, you know, their, their House member and their, their two senators, um, especially ones that have, uh, have Republicans in those offices that represent them, um, tell them, hey, you know, this is, this, is a, um, this is not protecting my interest as a taxpayer, um, and you need to do something about it. Uh, if the administration is not going to, like, change direction to, uh, to fit with the market, um, and, and going to keep on this path that just puts us in more debt and uh, eventually taxpayers are going to suffer for it, then Congress needs to do something and, and, and force that issue. And uh, they can. And their next, uh, I'm sure there's going to be another stimulus bill, uh, when they do that, they can put in uh, provisions that, that um, uh, halt leasing temporarily so that our, our interests are protected or that prevent the administration from giving royalty relief. Uh, that would um, create an incentive to, to produce oil at a time when we, we don't need it right now. Uh, the thing is, the oil is going to be there. You know, it's it's taken taken millions of years to to, uh, to develop. It's going to be there. Uh, so hitting the pause button doesn't doesn't take it away. It's not like what you know some you know left groups are saying, whereas oh we can't use any oil anymore. We just got to stop. This is a pause button. This is not a uh, uh, you know. Plug up, plug it up forever, uh, thing, and um, you know it makes so much common sense, and it's fiscally responsible. It uh, it works toward conservation. It works toward the, the principle of multiple use, which uh, you know has been around since Teddy Roosevelt's time, where you you manage that land for its highest use at the time. And right now, oil production is is certainly not what we need, and the industry's hoarded enough uh, leases and enough permits. They've got enough to last them a long time. So, so pausing for six months or even 12 months uh, would not hurt the industry in the least. And actually, it would 
ultimately lead to to higher oil and gas prices faster once the economy starts coming around. Well, I really like what you said too about we're going to see another stimulus. I think without question, a stimulus or even two. And I think that if we're getting more from our lands at fair market value that we should be that protects taxpayer interests, that enables the government to do more for people that they shut down through no fault of their own. Businesses are failing, employees are laid off. I like that approach, and I think this is the right time to bring this forward. Well, let me ask you this. How can people follow your good work? What, what are you looking for from our audience besides, you know, contacting uh, their representatives? Oh, well, they can certainly visit our website at um, www.conservativestewards.org. They can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, the organization's Conservatives for Responsible Stewardship. Uh, we have we have over 20,000 members nationwide, so uh, it doesn't cost anything to join. Be part of our network, and uh, we can uh, hopefully turn this kind of thing around. What typically makes up the base of your membership? What what, what kind of walk of life do people come from? Their background? Uh, well, it's all walks of life, and it's it's all ages. Although we we probably skew a little bit older. Um, our, our board, we have we have quite a few folks in their 70s and stuff like that. That's okay. Uh, but uh, but um, we have we have members in every state. We tend our membership tends to grow in states and in, in districts that are that are more Republican. Um, and um, most of our members are traditional Republicans. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan type Republicans, um, uh, people that um, uh, understand what conservation means and has meant, and that um, you know. Conservatives have always, um, in the past, has uh, led the charge on this and done so in a in a way that makes sense, and um, they want to be out there and uh, uh, be back active in this. I think I think our party has, uh, or the Republican Party, has has ceded this whole playing field to the left for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, since since probably the mid 90s, and um, we don't need to do that. We've got good ideas. We've got. We, we care about this stuff too so so why why disengage why not be actively engaged and in, um, in a meaningful way and and put our ideals out there to compete uh, with uh, the ideals that come from the other side well you convinced me in this interview because I knew a little bit about this topic but you can tell by the novel questions I asked I had a lot of learning to do and I still do but but the decentralization fiscal responsibility and responsibility to the environment and the welfare of the country are things I think we can all get on board with. Uh, I'm sorry, we're just about out of time, Dave, but we've been speaking with Dave Jenkins, and uh, we'll post his information when we go to the website with this interview for contact information because it'll be a little hard to remember. But, uh, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. This was a fascinating discussion. It'll be my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, take care. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back.